Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome. As we uh, get started here, would you bow your heads with me and pray? Lord, we're so thankful for the gift of your word, your word that brings life. Lord, that reveals your holiness, our sinfulness, our great need for a, sa uh, a Savior. Lord, I pray that as we turn to your word right now, you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, today, as many of you know, is September 11th. It's been about 21 years, I think it is, since the terrorist attacks that killed 3,000 people, destroyed the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center in New York City, and altered just about everything in our country as a result. I remember we were living in California at the time. Uh, we were getting ready to go to work, and someone had called us, and we're turned on our TV, and we're trying to make sense of what it is that we're seeing on this picture. It was so shocking, so just out of this world. We couldn't fathom what was taking place. And of course, uh, this was in the time before social media, before smartphones, so communication was limited. None of us knew what was happening. Uh, the, the debris has long since been cleared up. Uh, New Yorkers rebounded fairly quickly. Buildings have been rebuilt. We now have museums and memorials. But as the years tick on and the memories fade, the danger is always there that we'll slowly forget that the intensity of those emotions will soften and 9-11 will become just one more event in a long history of facts and figures. And the challenge for all of us is to, to somehow resist this historical drift, right? To remember and never forget. And it's not just 9-11, it's, it, it, it's, it's any of a dozen pivotal moments in our history of uh, of the sacrifices of uh, World War I or the incredible uh, uh, feats of D-Day or the Korean War, Vietnam War, or, or, or any of these events. If you go to Washington, D.C., as many of you have, and you walk down uh, the mall there and you see these enormous memorials erected to help us remember the sacrifice of those who have gone before us. And in our passage today in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is going to make a similar plea to us to remember and to never forget, to uh, push back against the dulling effects of affluence, to remember the gift of obedience, and, and to lean hard into remembering and retelling the uh, gift, uh, uh, the story for the next generation to shape and form a community that keeps God at its center, even in the midst of an idolatrous culture that would work so hard to tear it apart. It's a message of profound significance for us still today as we battle so many of those same temptations and find ourselves in the midst of a similarly hostile culture. Remember and don't forget the Lord and all that he has done. That's our message for today, to remember and not forget the Lord and all that he has done. 
Well, as I said, we're starting here in Deuteronomy 6 uh, in, chapter, in uh, verse 10, if you have your Bibles. Uh, for 40 years, the people of God have wandered in the desert, right? Dry, dusty, barren, unforgiving, a place of, of struggle and need, a place of testing, a place of death. It was all that the people had ever known, hot days, cold nights, limited food and resources, and seemingly endless wandering for decades, long enough, in fact, for those who had been just little kids during the exodus to grow up and become parents and even grandparents themselves. Oh yes, God was with them, God was for them, God was leading and guiding and providing for them, but their day-to-day experience was still one of difficulty and struggle. And although their long, arduous journey was almost over, Moses was deeply concerned for what would happen next. For with imminent victory came also the threat of potential disaster. Was still, Moses knew he wouldn't be there to personally shepherd his flock. His journey was coming to a different kind of end, and as such, it was imperative that he remind the people of their main duty and goal in life, to love and serve and worship God and God alone. And so he takes up his pen, and as we read here in verse 10, he says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards that, and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, I don't know about you, but as a parent, I tend to worry most about the unforeseen dangers and trials and suffering that lie ahead uh, for my children. I worry about the needs they will have, the struggles they will endure. But in some sense, the opposite seems to be the case here. The people had only ever known suffering, struggle, and want. They had never had a place to call their own. They had always lived hand-to-mouth, relying on the daily provision of the Lord. So it should be good news, right, that they're, they're heading into the promised land, a place of milk and honey and provision and plenty. Look at all these These blessings listed in verses 10 and 11, everything's being handed to them on a silver platter. Now imagine you've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. How could this be anything other than a major upgrade? And yet look at the very next line in verse 12. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, our English words, take care, can sometimes sound a bit, a bit limp, like the kind of warning you might give someone before drinking their coffee, like, watch out, it's a little hot. And, but Moses means something far more serious, something more like, 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 watch out, be on your guard, there's mortal danger ahead, right? Like, this is your decision point, except for 
for them, they've been out in the back country <laughs> facing death, and now they're heading into this promised land. It's reversed. And Moses says, this is going to be far more dangerous for you. The, the famous verses that we love to quote from Deuteronomy 6 are, are less pretty wall sticker and, and, and more dire warning. Because loving the Lord with everything you have is to be the single defining characteristic of your life. And peace, prosperity, comfort, and affluence are some of the greatest threats to such a God-centered life that we will ever face. Now, of course, it's not that the blessings themselves are somehow uh, evil or bad. I mean, God is the giver of all good gifts. He's the one who's leading them into the promised land. He's like, here's the land that I have prepared for you. Right? The gifts aren't the problem. We're the problem. Or to be more precise, our sin is the problem. We're the ones who are constantly mistaking the gift for the giver, worshiping the creation instead of the creator. We're the ones who are so quick to forget. But look at verse 13. Moses says, Yahweh you shall fear, him you shall serve, by his name you shall swear. Why does Moses make this such a strong emphasis? Because he knows the tendency of his people to fear everyone, anyone other than God. To serve and worship and run after false gods. And to place their allegiance and their trust in whatever idols fit their situation best. Do you remember the command from verse 7 that we studied last week, right? That Pastor Michael preached on. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Right? And last week we talked about all the different discipleship opportunities outlined in that verse. But this week I want you to see why for Moses these are not optional activities. Because literally everywhere in the promised land where the people would sit, eat, drink, talk, or walk, they would be enticed with, uh, uh, where they would be confronted with all enticing alternatives to worship anyone other than God. From the moment that they rose up in the morning in homes they didn't build until the moment they lay down at night full with food from vineyards and plants and orchards, that they didn't plant. To whom would they direct praise, honor, and worship in the face of such blessing? Would they attribute it to their own ingenuity and skill or to other gods? Or would they recognize the Lord, Yahweh, as the giver of all of this, the one who had provided everything? To whom will you give praise, honor, and worship. Look, despite what uh, you may see on the news, we actually live in a time of astonishing peace and prosperity compared to most people living in human history. That's not to downplay or minimize any of the uh, more immediate suffering and struggle, illnesses, diseases, all the things that we pray about in our service every week and we look to God's help for. 
That's very real. But, but big picture, comparatively, when you think about the entire course of human history and around the world, we are at the top of the heap. But with all that blessing comes all kinds of challenges. We must constantly be on guard against the temptation to take it all for granted. Of assuming that ever-increasing health and prosperity and success is, is promised and assured to us. Or that it's our wisdom, our planning, our power that pays the bills and keeps the lights on. Well, How do we resist all of that? It is not easy, hence the dire warning, <laughs> right? I've been working, uh, as I was working through the passage, I've been working this week in my day-to-day life trying to think through, like, how do I bring these momentous verses down into just the ordinary moments of my life, going to Target, uh, uh, go, getting the groceries at Jewel or Aldi, filling up the car with gas trying to remind myself in these mundane moments that all of this, it's a gift. All of it, (laughs) right? I mean, the clothes uh, on the shelf at Target uh, uh, put together with machinery devised by engineers whose creative impulse and drive and, 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 and ability given to them by God, whether they recognize it as coming from Him or not. Right, right. I can buy it all with money from a job that God himself graciously provided. The lights stay on consistently because God has blessed us with a stable power grid and a relatively minimal amount of corruption, allowing us to have a reliable and consistent power supply. The gas going into my car comes from oil that God himself placed in the ground thousands of years ago. And on and on. All these little mundane moments, opportunities to remember God's gracious, ongoing, sustaining power and provision in my life. Guarding against forgetfulness doesn't mean living in a perpetual state of sort of heightened spiritual fervor. Like nobody can sustain that. But it does mean that almost any part of my day can be a chance for worship, a chance to remember and not forget the Lord and his good gifts. That's what Moses is encouraging his people to do when they enter into the promised land. Well, if the first challenge there is to uh, remember God's providential work in our lives, the second challenge goes one step further because it's not enough to simply remember God in the same way that we might fondly remember a a meal we once had or a friend or a distant acquaintance, right? We must also keep his commandments. Look at uh, verse 16. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do all that is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. Now, the key words here are keep 
and do. Keep and do. Keep the commandments. Do what is right and good. But in order to understand the full significance of and weight of these commands, we have to go back and look at this reference in verse 16 to the testing of the Lord at Massa. What is, what is Moses talking about here? Well, he's referring to the, uh, the passage we had read just before the sermon here from uh, Exodus chapter 17. This was very early in the Exodus narrative, uh, right before the people had even, they haven't even arrived at Mount Sinai yet. They've just crossed the Red Sea, one of the most dramatic moments in all of human history. And soon after that, the people arrive at at Mara, not not Massa, but Mara, where despite their grumbling, God makes the bitter water drinkable. Some short time later, they find themselves again in in the wilderness of, of sin, and they start grumbling again, wishing that they had died in Egypt text actually says that they wish that God had killed them in Egypt. It's, it, it's shocking. But God graciously absorbs their whining, disrespectful lack of faith. And he responds with this incredible promise. He's going to provide them with meat in the form of quail and this, this, this flaky uh, bread-like substance, this manna that will uh, sustain them throughout their time in the desert. And then finally the people arrive at Rephidim. This is now the moment that Moses refers to in our text in Deuteronomy. The place is called Rephidim, but but Moses is later going to rename it Massa and Meribah because of the way the people respond to God. So again, there's no water for them to drink. So what do they do? Well, the text in Exodus uh, 17 says they quarrel with Moses. They've upped the ante here. We're, we're done grumbling, now we're quarreling. In fact, Moses says, look, I'm afraid they're going to stone me to death. Worse than that, the text says the people, the people are now testing the Lord. The Lord who has been moving consistently over and over again to bless and provide. But they continue to question, is God really with us? But as before, God chooses to respond to their faithlessness with his faithfulness. And so he tells Moses to strike the rock with his staff, and it will produce the water that the people need. Now why does this incident from 40 years earlier carry such importance for Moses? Remember, Deuteronomy is basically one long farewell speech to the people, a a final rousing call to faithfulness as they prepare to enter the promised land. And in this section in particular, Moses has already set before them a dire warning. Do not forget the God who brought you to this place. And this is what what Moses means when he exhorts the people not to put God to the test. How did they test God at Amasa? By questioning God's presence among them. Well, how then were they to display their trust in him instead? By keeping and doing his commandments. Now, our actions do not earn our salvation. But 
At the same time, our salvation is, in some sense, proved by our actions. So what are some ways in which that we may find ourselves testing God by living in ways that either deny or call into question his ongoing presence and provision? In other words, times when we may find ourselves grumbling and complaining about God or to God, when we ignore his Spirit's presence and promptings, when we greedily grab after the things of this world, looking for a quick endorphin rush or a fleeting moment of physical comfort instead of resting in the lasting peace we can only find in Christ. When we confess the right words with our mouths, but fail to live up to that profession of faith with our lives. When we give in to the temptation to flex on the truth or, or bend the rules to give ourselves a little more moral wiggle room in areas of personal weakness. In every single moment like that, we are testing God, denying his constant presence in our lives by acting as if he isn't there. Denying his loving provision and care for us by acting as if we have to do it all and by, uh, all by and for ourselves. And the solution is not just right belief, although obviously that's the root. If you don't believe that God is, is omniscient and, and uh, omnipresent and, and omnipotent, then that's a whole different problem entirely. But God Moses calls the people to actually put their belief into action, to display their faithfulness by keeping the law, by doing what is right. Not just believing it, not just professing it, but taking that next step and then doing it, living differently as a result. Now you may say, well, what laws? What commands? Well, think back of all the sermons we had this summer on the Ten Commandments. We're going to get into a whole host more in the coming weeks. But just the last 10 weeks, right? Look back over your sermon load. Re-listen to those sermons. Pray over that passage in Scripture. Ask God to reveal to you the places where that gap may slowly have been forming between what you profess to be true, what you claim to believe, and the way in which you're actually acting, thinking, behaving, uh, speaking in your day-to-day life, in your relationships, in your business, at work, and at school. And as a word of encouragement, keep these scenes from Exodus in mind. At Mara, at the wilderness of Siena, at Massa, in each instance, God provided for his people in spite of their grumbling, in spite of their lack of trust, in spite of their doubt, rescuing them from Pharaoh, turning the bitter water sweet, raining bread and meat from the sky, bringing life-giving water out of the dry and barren ground. If God only provided and blessed based solely on the level of our obedience and faithfulness, would be in a sorry state of affairs. But he doesn't. 
He blesses and sustains us even when we grumble and complain, even when we're at our worst. He never lets go because he is faithful even when we are not. So remember and don't forget to obey the Lord and his commands. What a final section here. The command for Moses is to remember and to retell the story. You know, it's been hard to miss the coverage on the news this week of the uh, passing of Queen Elizabeth. And in the days since her death, uh, the news has been filled with all these stories people have uh, about her past, personal stories of encounters people had with her, of the unexpectedly normal person she often proved to be in private, or her genuine interest in care for others, or her heart for helping those in need. This is what we do when someone dies, right? We tell stories, because stories are powerful. When everything around us is in a constant state of flux, stories help, help ground us and stabilize us. Those deep roots in the past provide a solid foundation from which we can then face into the instability and the uncertainty of the present. Deuteronomy 6 opens with a plea to impress a deep and abiding knowledge of the past on the children of the future. And here in our last section, Moses loops back around to that same theme once again. He looks ahead to a time when the next generation of Israelites would stop and ask their parents, why are we so different than everyone else around us? Why do we live this way? Now, for any of you with little kids, what's a standard response when they start asking these why questions over and over and over again? It's like, just because I said so, all right? <laughs> But Moses resists that urge, and he pushes deeper. He grounds his admonitions in the greatest story in the lives of the people, the Exodus. And so we read in, in verse 20, he says, When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. In just a few verses, Moses manages to summarize the key elements of their rescue from Egypt. First, Moses reminds them of where they came from. Once upon a time, they had been slaves in Egypt, brutally oppressed, horribly mistreated, completely trapped, utterly helpless, crying out to God for relief. But in that moment, the Lord moved. Right? He acted, he intervened directly, powerfully, specifically in their lives, bringing them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with strength, with power, with authority. 
And the Lord accomplished this through astonishing displays of power. The Lord defied the greatest ruler on earth at that time, decimating Pharaoh's kingdom and household, making a public mockery of their false gods, their pathetic idols. And finally, the Lord did all this so that he might bring the people into the land promised to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as a display of God's faithfulness to his covenant. That's his answer to the question, why do we live like this? Why do we eat and drink and work and worship in ways that are often so different from the world around us? He doesn't lean on law. He leans on their shared story. The answer is, because this is who we are. We are a rescued people, a redeemed people, a chosen people, a people brought out of slavery and brought into a land of promise. We, we, we're not just witnesses to this story. We're participants in it. That's what Moses wants them to see. We may not have personally experienced the exodus but the experience defines us personally. In other words, Moses says, their obedience is intended to be rooted in their identity. Look at the last two verses from this chapter. Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The law, Moses reaffirms, is for their good, to bring them life. And their doing of the law is to flow out of their shared experience of redemption as a blessing. Not a stifling duty, but an honored, cherished privilege not to ensure or guarantee their salvation, but as a joyful response to their salvation. In a chapter that's devoted to the importance of remembering, Moses tells the people, don't forget where you came from. And that same principle applies to us as Christians. Like, you may never have set foot in Egypt, but you too were once a slave to sin. Even if you weren't the chief of sinners, even if your life on the whole was pretty decent and moral and upright, especially compared to others around you, it doesn't matter. The Bible is clear that without God, you were dead in your sins and helpless to do anything about it until Jesus stepped in to break that curse and set you free. Look, many of you were at the baptism service on, uh, on Friday night, and you saw seven children get baptized, seven sweet, wonderful, young kids, good kids. But part of that baptism service involved a, a, a recognition that without Jesus' work in their lives, they were all separated from God, alienated from the great promises of Scripture, until God worked 
in a mighty way to bring each one of those seven children out of that foreign land and into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. That baptism service was a reflection of the deeper work of redemption that was achieved on their behalf. But as exciting as that baptism service was on Friday night, baptism is not the finish line. Right? It's more like a commissioning ceremony because these seven young men and women have formally and publicly committed themselves now to the mission of loving God and loving others, to spreading the gospel, to participating with God as he grows and builds his kingdom, to giving their lives to serving the Lord and Savior, learning over time what it means to fear the Lord, to do his commands for their good, for his glory, taking this incredible life-changing story and taking it out into the world world. This is at least one reason why we gather together like this on Sunday mornings, right? To rehearse this great story of redemption collectively over and over again as we, as we sing and as we pray and as we read scripture and as we break bread and drink the cup together, together. It's repetitive for a reason, Because we need to take care lest we forget these mighty acts of God in our lives. And so Moses says, take care to remember and not forget, to do these commands, to not forget where you came from, the story that you're a part of, to share that with others. As a final word of conclusion, let let me close by saying this. The power to follow God with such single-minded focus and attention. It it doesn't come simply from attending church. It doesn't come from the fervency of your prayers or the frequency of your Bible study. The power that you are looking for comes directly from the Father, through the Son, through the power of the Spirit working inside you. You know that, that, that sensation that you feel of falling short in some way, that, that tinge of frustration with yourself, that's a gift from God meant to drive you back to Him for help to keep pressing forward. A gift meant to remind you, you cannot do any of this in your own strength. As we heard in the reading earlier today, the only one who obeyed perfectly was Jesus. The only one. You couldn't save yourself from sin. You cannot usher yourself into glory. And you won't ever be able to resist sin, flee temptation, remember God, do his commands, or teach others to do the same without divine intervention to help you. Jesus is that spiritual rock who provides the living water, enabling us to never be thirsty again. He says in John 4, The water that I will give will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So you may get distracted and forgetful, but he will never leave you nor forsake you. Your faith may grow cold, but nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
Your anxieties and fears may threaten to overwhelm you, but he promises to walk through the fire with you. You may stumble off in the wrong direction, but he is a good shepherd who will never, ever, ever abandon his sheep. And finally, you may struggle to forget the sin and darkness from your own past. You may fight against lingering guilt and shame and wonder often if any of these promises can really still apply to you. But there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been made alive in Christ, a new creation. May you never forget it. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray this week that you would help us to remember the deeds of the Lord. Help us to remember your wonders of old. Help us, Lord, to ponder all of your work, to meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. Help us to remember that there is no God who is great like you are. You are the one who works wonders. You have made known your might among the prophets. Help us this week to remember and never forget that it was your arm that redeemed your people, your arm that redeemed us, bringing us into your kingdom, adopting us as beloved sons and daughters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.